And it's, a, it's an honor and a privilege to uh, be standing at this podium tonight. And I thank Pastor Sam for uh, relinquishing it to uh, one of the young guys in church so I can share with my heart uh, with y'all tonight. Tonight's study is on faith. There are many definitions where people talk about faith is. But we're going to really get down to the meat of the Word of God and really look at what is faith. And we'll cover three important aspects concerning faith. One will be what is faith, or better yet, what is saving faith? Because we live in a society right now where you almost have to put that adjective on the front of it, you know? 80% of the country right now claims to be Christians. However, if this was truly the case, our country today would look completely different on a political landscape than we do today. So I'm going to put that adjective in front of it. What is saving faith? Two, once we are born again and children of, of the Most High God, how do we exercise this faith in our life? And three, what are the benefits of exercising faith? So we start off and we look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It's, and, uh, it says that without faith, it is impossible for us to please God. Now, we can't even begin to please God without faith. It becomes imperative that we understand from God's word what exactly is the type of faith that pleases God. So let us begin this Bible study tonight. Keep your Bibles handy. I have a lot of scripture. We're going to try to hit it all. If we lack for time, I may just give you the address of it, and y'all can go back later, okay? So when we begin tonight, I think it'd be pretty important, before we get to what faith is, to look at what is faith not, okay? Um, first thing we look at it is uh, we see that faith is not misinformed. To have faith, it must have content. And the content of this faith must be correct. The Bible makes very specific claims about Jesus. It makes very specific claims about what he did for us. And this um, knowledge or this um, information that we have must be based on the biblical definition of who Christ is, what he did. You know, many of the world's religions today claim Christ. They call him a great man, a great prophet, a great philosopher, a good moral teacher. But all of them deny his divinity. And some of the even more secular voices even deny his existence altogether. Now, this by itself is kind of silly because if you actually look at the claims that Jesus made, for instance, I'm the resurrection and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Well... That's fine and dandy, but if you're just claiming to be a good, moral teacher, and you make these claims, and it's not true, then you're a liar. Or worse yet, you're nuts. You're a lunatic, you know what I mean? So we really have to take a look at it and see what we believe. Having belief in this, these misinformed ideas is not faith. We must know the correct Christ in order to be the beneficiaries of his great sacrifice. This does not mean that we have to be biblical scholars of the word, but it does mean we have to have some kind of base, fundamental truth based on the word about who Christ is. Faith that saves must be properly informed. Two, faith is not misinformed. The second thing that faith is not, it is not only mental. It is not just intellectually assenting or agreeing to the facts of the word. 
James 2.19. Turn with me if you have your Bibles open. James 2.19 says that you believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. The fact is we can believe in our mind that the Bible is true and it not affect our lives one single bit. We can believe that the Bible is accurate knowledge and still hate God. The demons believe in the living God and his Christ. They mentally assent to the fact that God exists and they know he rules and they know he reigns. It is not enough to only mentally assent or to agree in your mind that Jesus is Lord. Faith that saves is much more than this. Number three, saving faith is not momentary. Look at Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. This is the parable of the sower. Okay? And let's start off off in verse 3. And this is Jesus speaking. He says, listen, behold, the sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside. And the birds of the air came and devoured it. And some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth. But when the sun was up and it was scorched... Because it had no root, it withered away. Some seed fell among the thorns, and thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell amongst the good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced. Thirty, some sixty, some a hundredfold. Let him who has ears, let him hear. His, uh, his, I'm going to skip over a little bit for the sake of time. His disciples came to him and said, explain this to us. And he says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? There's something in this parable that unlocks the rest of the parables for us. Jesus says, if you don't understand this one, you're not going to understand them all. The fact is, this parable talks about true and false conversion. We see that the, the, the sorrow that received on the wayside never believed, never assented. For as soon as they heard the word, Satan came and he pulled it away. They have the, the, the sorrow of the stony ground. And the saw with the thorns and the thistles rose up. And Jesus explained here that these are the ones who heard the message, rejoiced for a season, but then fell away when trials, temptations, persecutions, and the cares of this world came. They fell away and bore no fruit. However, the good soil received the word. It took root in spite of all the struggles of this world and went on to produce much fruit. Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 through 20. I told you I'm going to keep you all running in your Bibles tonight, okay? I hope that's all right. Matthew 7, 16 through 20. Jesus says, You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree bears bad fruit. Good, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree can bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. We're expected to go on and produce fruit in our life. If we don't have any fruit, our deeds, our works that, that glorify God, there may be a problem. John 8, uh, 30 and 31 Jesus said this. 
He spoke these words, and many of them believed in him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. If you abide in my word, that means to stay, to dwell there, to not forsake. If you abide in my word, and my word abides in you, you are my disciples indeed. And the last scripture we're going to look onto this topic is Hebrews 10, 38, and 39. I think it really gives a good description of the fact that faith is not only momentary. It's not momentary. It's, it's something that lasts. Hebrews 10, 38, and 39. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Then he goes on to say, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition. Perdition is a word for destruction, okay? But of those who believe to the saving of the soul. They continue in it. They don't fall away. Faith that saves is not momentary. So we've seen so far tonight what faith is not. It is not misinformed. It is not only mental or to mentally assent to it. And it is not momentary. Let us move on to see what is faith. What is biblical faith that we should, we should be enacting here? Faith that saves. Well, first off, we need to know that it, 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 um, it starts off with three components. It is made up of three separate things, okay? They are knowledge, assent, and trust. All three things combine to make faith. They are not independent of one another, nor can they stand alone to produce true faith. The three are necessary in order to produce faith that honors God. Basically, I, I view them as a tripod upon which saving faith stands. If you remove one of the legs from this tripod, faith will fall. It won't stand. It takes all three aspects of, of, this, of faith for it to stand. The first one we'll look at is knowledge. There are certain facts concerning the gospel that we have to know. We do see an actual intellectual concept into, into believing. Um, we have to know who the real Jesus is and his purpose. John 20, uh, verse 31, it says that, uh, right here, and truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So we have to have the head knowledge about who Jesus is. Once again, we don't have to be biblical scholars, but we do know, have, have to know the basis. We do have, have to know his divinity. We do have to know that he, he, he is eternal from everlasting to everlasting, came down, lived a perfect, flawless life, paid the penalty and the debt that I owe towards God on my behalf, and that in him I have salvation. We have to believe that on the third day he was raised from the dead because if he's still in the grave, our faith is in vain. So there are certain aspects of the knowledge of the word of God that we have to know in order to have faith. The second aspect of, of faith that we want to look at is the concept of assent. Because while we can't just believe in our minds that these things are true, it is a necessary uh, element to true saving faith. You know, I have to agree that this knowledge that I possess concerning Christ is true. I have to stand in agreement in my mind that the knowledge that I have is reality. So I have to know it, 
I have, and I have to know it from the word of God, but I also have to believe it. I say, you know what? Jesus is the son of God. He died for my sins. I believe it. I believe that he did this on my behalf. Now, knowledge in the sin are two-thirds of what faith, what faith is. As we saw early in, earlier in James, this type of faith, knowledge in a sin, the demons have. The demons possess this type of knowledge, okay? Uh, they know who Jesus Christ is, and they believe he's the son of God. I mean, you better believe they believed it whenever he uh, went down to, to uh, Abraham's bosom and, and kicked some tail, took out the captives and said, hey, we come, we're getting out of here to all the Old Testament righteous. He said, uh, the word says that he made a public spectacle of the demons whenever he did that. They know who he is. However, if this is all that we possess of faith, we will find ourselves falling infinitely short. The third aspect is trust. And in Robert Raymond's Systematic Theology book, he states that trust is faith's most characteristic act. To, to kind of illustrate this, I want to use this analogy, okay? I have my neighbor. Not really my neighbor, but my neighbor. And every time my neighbor goes to leave to go out of town for the weekend or an extended trip, I come to him and I offer him. I say, listen, let me watch your house for you. I live right here next door. There's no sweat. I know you have a dog in the backyard. Let me feed and water your dog for you. And your garden, too. While I'm there, I'll, just, I'll put some water on it. And he goes out of t- town quite often, so I always offer the, him this, and he always turns me down. But in the same breath, he turns around right after I ask him, he turns around and asks the, the, the next-door neighbor right next door to me to do the same things that I just offered him. Now, thinking about this, would this indicate that he had any kind of trust in me? No. It would indicate the very opposite. It would tell me that he does not trust me because he is not willing to entrust the things close to him to my care. You see, the term trust infers that we are willing to entrust something to someone else. In order for us to have saving faith, we must trust or entrust our lives to Christ. Matthew chapter 1, verses 21. I want to look at that verse, and I think it's pretty telling about the mission of Jesus and what he did. Um, Matthew 1, 21, it says, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. What will he save his people from? Their sin. How is it that then we can come to Christ, trust him to save us from our sin, if we are still entrusting our lives to the very thing that he suffered and died for? The answer is we can't. In order for us to trust Christ and entrust our lives to him, we must turn away from sin. The sin that we entrust our lives for, for temporal comfort, temporal pleasure, security, must be laid down in order for us to reach towards Christ. This is the biblical definition of repentance. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. The Bible says that all we have to do is believe. And repentance sounds awful like like work, like a work that we would do. How can this be? Let's break it down. Let's take a look at it. Because we see some scriptures in the Bible that only refer to believing. Acts uh, 16.30 is about the, uh, the jailer. And he came to Paul 
and said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And the only thing Paul says to him is believe, and you and your household will be saved. Nothing else, just believe, okay? Romans 10, 9 and 10, um, that's probably a really famous uh, verse. You know, we, we talk about it a lot, how that uh, if we confess the Lord with our mouth and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. It talks about nothing but just a belief and a confession of faith. Um, and also John 3.16, of course, this is the most famous. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. But then we also see scriptures that refer only to repenting. Matthew 4.17. For that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. Another one we'll look at right now is Luke 13, uh, 3 through 5. Luke 13, 3 through 5. And, well, actually, let's start in verse 1. Um, there were present at that season some who told him, being Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them and said, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. Are the 18 whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse sinners than other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. Acts 17.30 For God overlooked the times of ignorance. But now he commands all men everywhere that they must repent, for he is uh, appointed a day which, which he will judge the world. Um, in Acts 26, 20, that'll just be a reference for later because I don't want to, uh, you know, take too much time quoting scripture for you. We also see in scripture where they say both, both of them. We must believe and we must repent. Repent and believe, believe and repent. Mark 1, 15 and Acts 20, 21 are examples of this, Okay. So the question becomes, how do we reconcile these scriptures? You know, on one hand, we have one scripture saying that we need to believe. And on the other hand, we have scriptures that tell us just to repent. We reconcile them by understanding that, that they, being believe and repent, infer one another. You see, the English word that we now use today, the word believe, oftentimes takes the, the form of mental assent. Just to believe something to be true something we believe but has really no real impact on our life. You know, the sky is blue. We believe that. We know it to be true. Doesn't impact us here or there. The grass is green. The dirt is brown. However, the word used in the Bible that says believe, the word used to describe believe goes much, much deeper than mental assent, okay? The Greek word used for believe is pistuo. While it does mean to think to be true, it also carries a much deeper meaning of a belief that causes trust, a belief that causes us to entrust. Here's an illustration for you, okay? You go to the doctor, routine checkup. The doctor runs a, a, a panel of, of tests on you. He comes back very solemnly. He's like, man, I, I regret to tell you this, but... All the tests came back positive. You have this terminal disease, and it's not good. 
Matter of fact, everybody who's had this disease has died in about a week's time. It's horrible. Understandably, you begin to tremble and, and, and want to cry. But the doctor says, hold on. We have this brand new drug on the market that everybody, every time someone has felt sick with this disease and they've taken this, 100% of the time, they've been cured. Eradicated of the disease, no further side effects, no nothing. If you believe this to be, to be the case, would you take that medicine? Would you act out and grab that medicine from that doctor and take it down if you truly believed you're going to die? And if you truly believed that by taking this medication you would receive your life back? You would if you believed it. You would if you wanted to live. You see, your belief would cause action. Your belief would cause you to do something about it if you truly believed this to be the case. You see, repentance becomes a work whenever we reduce faith down to knowledge and assent. In reality, repentance is the mind and body's reaction to the heart that truly believes. We are not saved by this repentance, okay? Make no mistake about it. We are saved by the faith that produces the repentance in our life. This is why faith and repentance are literally two sides of the same coin. They cannot be separated. James 2 20. Do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Or what about Romans chapter 2, verses 13? Now this is really, really something else coming from a, from a book where the main topic of conversation, if you will, and I exaggerate a little bit, but it's a heavy, heavy theme, is justification by faith alone. Look what Paul says right here. This is Romans chapter 2, verses 13. For not the hearers of the law are just in God's sight, but the doers of the law will be justified. You're like, what? What are you talking about, Paul? Uh, look in the very next chapter. You know, uh, look in Romans three twenty-eight. What do you say right here? Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So which is it? These things are polar opposites. Are we justified by doing God's law? Or are we justified by faith apart from the law? It can't seem to be correct. This has to be a contradiction. This has to be the contradiction of the word of God right here, right? The fact of the matter is, it's both. And here's why. When the believer has saving faith, it produces good works or repentance, however you want, to, you want to frame it. See, through repentance, we stop doing life our way and we start doing life God's way. This is accomplished not through our own strength, but through the power of the living word of God and through the Holy Spirit. As we submit ourselves into God's authority and power, we become little by little more like Christ. We become more and more holy. This, this doctrine is called progressive sanctification. We progressively become more and more set apart and able to be used by the hand of God. This leads a man or a woman to walk in a greater level of personal righteousness towards God and towards our fellow man. You see, when we are born again, when we're saved, whenever we have that spiritual regeneration, we are declared 100% righteous in the eyes of God. God applies the life 
and the perfect life of Jesus Christ to our account. So whenever he sees us, he literally sees the perfection and the righteousness of Jesus. This life of Christ that every true believer has shines through our own life. By faith, producing repentance that allows us to line up, standing straight up to God's law. You see, the word righteousness, it's not a religious word. It's actually a legal word. That means you're in right standing to the law. Okay? You see, this repentance produces righteousness in our life. This is why Paul can say without contradiction, the doers of God's law will be justified before God. It's not that our doing justifies us, but it's the fact that the faith that we have toward God is producing this work, is producing this repentance that brings forth the righteous, that makes us right standing under God's law. So our life begins to conform to the life of God, to the life of Christ. This doesn't happen overnight. This happens over a lifetime. But the fact of the matter is, the believer who has true faith in the living God at the end of his life, he will look a lot more like Jesus Christ than the day he started. Now, just as a side note, Paul's referring here to the moral law, okay? This is the law that's written on every man's heart. That whenever we violate it, our conscience knocks and says, buddy, you're doing wrong. This is the law that Paul's referring to. He's not referring to the Levitical uh, priestly laws. He's not referring to the dietary laws. He's not referring to the civic law in the land of Israel in that day. Paul's referring to this law as the moral law of God the, God, the, the law that God writes on every single man and woman's heart ever born, okay? Now, knowing this, knowing that we have faith that produces repentance, that produces righteousness, does this mean we don't sin? Of course not. Of course not. We still reside in a body that still craves the sinful pleasures of the world. This flesh, there's nothing good in it, Paul says. And it's true. It's, if you leave it to itself, it's going to want to do them, them sinful things. The things that feel good to, to the physical touch. You know? This is the difference. We may have seasons of our life where we fall into sin as a believer. But let me repeat. We fall. Okay? The world dives in head first. We may fall. If we don't guard our hearts properly and walk the way that God has us to walk, we may leave an open back door and, you know, it, may, it, it, it can happen. God makes provision where we can stay strong, but as long as we're in their flesh, it's a possibility. However, we don't spend the rest of our days in willful and abject sin towards God. We don't. Through God's grace and his mercy, we get back up and we continue walking in the path that God has called us to walk. You see, true children of God always get back up due to God's grace and strength that he imparts to our children, his children. The fact of the matter is, whenever we do fall into sin, the consequences are pretty darn bad. You don't get off scot-free, okay? God is not mocked. We reap what we sow. And if we sow into the flesh, we'll reap into the flesh death. We may fall, but we don't stay there. I love what Psalms 18, 35, 36 has to say about the, uh, the issue. And this is a promise from the word of God that we can actually have faith in and practice our faith. Psalms 18, 35 through 36, starting in the second half of 35. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. You've enlarged my path under me so that my feet did not slip. The fact remains, as we walk with God through faith, we become more and more like him. Both faith and repentance are gifts that God imparts. It is God who does it, we walk in it, 
and he still gets all the glory. Without God's strength, without his grace that's imparted to us, we can't walk this thing, people. We can't do it. It's not in our earthly, uh, fleshly strength to better live the life that God has called us to live. We'll fail every single time. Uh, I base this off of Ephesians uh, 2, 8 and 9, actually 8 through 10, where it says that uh, we are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. That faith is actually a gift of God. And uh, Acts eleven eighteen it says where God has granted repentance to the Gentiles. It's something that God granted them, and it was a gift of God. Um, turn with me and uh, look at uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Now, this is the, we all know this is the great faith chapter, okay? But there's something that I want to pick out about this, staying on tune with trusting in God as a part of our faith, all right? Um, and I'm going to skip around here to the examples, and they're, and they're listed here and there. I'm not going to read the whole uh, chapter. But we see, starting in verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God. By his, by his faith, he did something, okay? By, Enoch, by faith, Enoch was taken away that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him away. For he was taken, when he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. He pleased God by his lifestyle, by the things that he did. His faith produced something that pleased God in his life. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of the things to come, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark. Because of God, uh, Noah's faith in what God said was going to happen, he acted. He did something about it. He just didn't say, yeah, God, I believe that flood's coming. I have faith in you that the flood's coming. And then sit down. No, no, no. His faith sprung him into action to do the thing that preserved the human race. Uh, by, by faith, Sarah uh, herself also received strength to conceive seed. Okay, well, we know what the work is right there that uh, Sarah had to do to conceive. And we, that's all we need to say about that. Um, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, whenever he was tested, offered up Isaac, a faith and a work, side by side. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and, uh, and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each one of his sons. By faith, Joseph, when he, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. By faith, 24, Moses, when he was of age, refused to be called the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. His faith made him move out of, of temporal pleasure. And, to, and temporal luxury in order to achieve a better status. By faith, he forsook Egypt. You see right here, this is the great chapter of faith, but it also proves something to us. Faith that God accepts is a faith in action. It's not a faith that sits there and says, God, I believe your word. I know your word. I believe your word. But hey, you know, here I am. And that's about it. No, 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 no. The true faith that God accepts Action and works will always, always follow it. We see, we clearly see that faith, by faith, they trusted God and moved out and did the things that God had called them to do. You see, we as believers trust our lives to a risen Savior who cares so much for us that he stepped out of heaven and out of eternity, submitted himself to his creation, suffered and died to pay the debt that we owed, and in doing so saved us from an unthinkable, unfathomable eternity devoid of all goodness devoid of all life 
The only thing there is hatred, evil, chaos, torment, and suffering. This is what he saved us from. Is it not fitting that we would also give up our lives to the one who gave up everything for us? Romans 12, 1 says that we present our lives as a living sacrifice. And this is nothing great that we do. This is merely our reasonable service. Reasonable service. Then this means the base of what we're called to do is present ourselves as a living sacrifice before the Most High God. So, saving faith encompasses three things. Knowledge, we have to know the biblical Jesus. Two, assent, we must believe in who he says he is. And three, trust, we have to entrust our lives in obedience to his will. You know, the really sad thing is, is that many, many people who call themselves Christians and who say they have faith, faith in God will be sadly mistaken whenever they enter into that final day. They're going to go in thinking that everything's a-okay. I came up to an altar one day. I said the prayer. I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And they went out and nothing ever, ever changed. It was the same old life they had always been living with a false assurance and a false confidence because someone told them, all, all we have to do is believe. And that's true. The biblical word of believe. But we take it just to mean agree with my mind that I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And people will be sorely, sorely disappointed. And it's going to be a mistake that they can't go back. Jesus makes this abundantly clear in Matthew 7, 21 and 23. He said, many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, have I not done, and I paraphrase here, have I not done all these great things in your name? Have I done all these things for him? They knew him as Lord. But he'll say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. That word iniquity is lawlessness. They live their lives without any care to what God thought about it. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul encourages us. He says, examine yourself and test yourself to see if that you are in the faith. I've, I've, ha- I've done this time and to- time again in my life, and I encourage all of us here tonight to do the same thing. This is what saving faith is. It's not merely knowledge. It's not merely assent. It's also trust. Now, we see what saving faith is. Let's look at how the believer exercises faith toward God. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul talks about we walk by faith and not by sight. Paul here refers to how a believer ought to live life before the Lord. Right here, right now, on this earth. Not in some bygone eternal age to come, but right here, right now. See, the child of God walks by believing and entrusting himself to God and the promises that are found in the word of God. We choose to believe the word and what it says over what our flesh says. We choose to believe the word over what our circumstances tell us. We choose to believe the word over what our environment dictates to us. You see, because all these things are temporal. But we serve something that's eternal. Something that's outside of this temporal age and this temporal time. On the other hand, the unbeliever walks according to their flesh, their feeling, their circumstances, their environments. That is what dictates the unbeliever's life. And they make their decisions and do everything in life based on what they feel. This should not be, nor does it need be, the case for the Christian. So how does one walk out this life of faith with God 
faith in his word and the promises found therein. How do we learn to trust the eternal versus the temporal? The things we cannot see versus the things that we do see. How do we learn to trust? Well, the same faith that brought us about salvation, the same three components, the knowledge, the assent, the trust, is the same exact way we continue in our walk towards God and in our belief towards his word. You see, faith comes and is increased by the word of God. Romans 10, 17. The way we are transformed and the way we transform our faith from being something brittle and something shakable and something weak to something that's abounding and strong is getting ourselves in the word, immersing ourselves in the word of God on a daily basis. You see, there really and truly is no other way around it. This is one of the, the few avenues of grace that God gives us by which our faith grows and abounds. You see, the Lord, Lord is proven by his word. Whenever we start to, to walk in this and we start to trust God in his word and apply it to our lives, and we, we start to see God coming through for us in some areas, you know, we pray about this job and the job comes through, or we pray about this, this situation that's not going really well, and Lord, give me, you know, help me out in this situation, and it starts to change, this increases faith even more. And the more and more you walk in this word, staying plugged into the word of God, faith grows. It is the way we, which we shed our carnal way of thinking, carnal meaning of the senses, of what we touch, what we smell, what we hear, what we see. It's the way of changing our carnal way of thinking, which agrees with the senses, and putting on a spiritual mind that agrees with God. Romans 12, 2. This one I do want to read to y'all, because there's so much packed in this verse right here that's going to literally unlock freedom of faith in people's lives if we just apply it. That's the thing. We have to apply it. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Do not be conformed where you're to put away the world's way of thinking, that is trusting in our carnal senses, where we can touch, hear, smell, taste, and be transformed by the renewing of our mind. How do we renew our mind? How does this happen? Does it happen by watching Oprah Winfrey on TV and learning life lessons about how to, you know, improve your life? No, no. This is done by filling it with the living word of God. This is how we renew our mind, folks. Jesus said in John 6, 63, the flesh profits nothing. It is the spirit that gives life. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. You see... We are transformed from a carnal way of thinking, which leads to a worldly mindset, which leads to worldly ways, to a spiritual thought pattern, which believes the things of the Spirit, which brings forth an unleashing of the things of God in our life and the things that we can walk out in our life that please the Lord. We are literally transformed. This is where the walk of faith has the potential to literally explode, okay? When the mind truly believes, what we truly believe in our mind, the will will follow. It always does. And we shall begin to prove. That word right here is powerful. We begin to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God for our life. Now listen. As in with salvation, if all you have is knowledge and assent towards God's word, we have nothing. If we just know it, 
And we say we, we assent to it, we agree with it, but that's all we have towards it. We have nothing. And we should not expect to receive anything from the hand of the Lord if this is all we have. James 1, 22 through 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing himself, his natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one is blessed in all that he does. James tells us outright, guys, it's not just enough to sit under the, the good preaching of the word of God. It's not enough to just sit down and open and read it for ourselves. While we do need these things, we do need them. But it's not enough. We have to put it on. God will not and does not respond to empty professions and confessions, no matter how much we may speak them. That's not what God responds to. You know, we can go around quoting scripture all day long. But if we don't have a work, if we're not working that scripture out in our lives, do not expect to receive anything from the hand of the Lord. It is wasted energy if we do not live and practice it. So what is this word that we are to put on and practice? What is it? John 1, 1 through 4 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst men. Revelation 19, 13. Well, this is a good one. This is powerful. Speaking of Jesus, He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Christ and the Word are one. Did you know that? Christ and the Word are one. He does nothing apart from his Word. You see, when we act on his Word, we are allowing Christ to act through us. When we give the Word the right of way in our life, we are actually allowing Christ to have the right of way in our life. Letting the word dwell in us is equivalent to allowing Christ to dwell in us. Remember, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. John 14, 21 through 20, uh, and 23. <clears throat> 14, 21. And he who has my commandments, Jesus speaking, and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Wow, what a powerful thought. But it's dependent. It's one of these promises that, you know what, it's just not willy-nilly, it just happens on its own. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then my father will love him. And we, speaking of him, he and the father, will come to him and make our home with him. And this is, this is powerful right here. 15, chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. You see, we walk out our knowledge and ascent of who Jesus is. 
and all the promises that the believer has by placing our trust in Christ through obedience to what he has commanded us. Matthew 22:37 says that we are to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, mind, and souls, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. You know, you say, and I've said this to, in my life too, and it's something we still work through. You know, this is a high calling. This is a really high calling. To love others the way I love myself. And Jesus raised the bar right here. Um, you know, in, in 1512, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? He completely submitted himself to, to, to his own creation. He went to the grave for us. So love others the same way Christ loved me? This is a high calling. You may, you may, be, you may be saying, hey, I can't do this. I can't do it. In that case, you'd be right. You can't do it. We can't do it. We are called to lean and trust on the one who can. The one who is strong enough. The one who is powerful enough. The one who holds the universe in his hand. You see, we are empowered by the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead to walk in faith towards God and towards his commandments. It is he who works through us in our faith. The way, we fulfill, <clears throat> the way we fulfill this high calling is through his word. This is why daily Bible time and communion with God are absolutely imperative. This is falling by the wayside, y'all. You know? And then we wonder why we have so many believers who are broke, busted, and disgusted. Struggling. Not seeing any victory in their lives. Being overcome by the world's circumstances. And being tossed to and fro in the waves of life. You know? But you ask them. When was the last time you, you, you read your, you read the Word? Oh, in church last Sunday? This is Saturday. You know, when was the last time you prayed to God? Oh, well, you know, on the way to work, you know, I kind of talked to God. I said, no, no, no. When was the last time you set aside a time dedicated to God and said, God, I'm meeting with you right here, right now? Oh, well, you know, I just kind of... Like, you wonder why you're so weak in your faith. You wonder why you're beset by, by the issues of life. It is the way we fulfill the high call of God through his word and through communion, which we have to completely immerse ourselves in and stay in it. It is the way if you want victory. It is the way if you want power of a flesh, hell, and the grave. It is the way if you want to rise above life circumstances instead of having life circumstances rise above you. It is the way. It is a necessity. You see, his word and his spirit build our faith. They renew our mind. And they transform our life into his life. We become more holy just as he is holy. You see, let me tell you something, people. When this happens, we begin to think like God's, God thinks. We begin to act like God acts. We begin to respond the way that God responds. By the power of his Holy Spirit and on the basis of faith in his word and his promises, we speak to the mountains that would obstruct the plan of God for our life, and they fall before us. You know, we can have what this word right here says we can have. We are what it says that we are, and we can do what it says we can do. This is where our faith is. When the trials and the temptations of life show up, and they always will, you know, don't believe that mess that, hey, now that you're a Christian, it's happy sailing. Trials, temptations, and tribulations of life always come. Matter of fact, Jesus, or was it Paul, said that, hey, all those who who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus 
are going to face persecution. Matter of fact, if you're not, if you're not facing these things, uh, it may be an indicator of something ain't right. If we stumble and fall, there's mercy and grace for us to get up. We are called to be more than conquerors through Christ. He is the one who gives us grace and power. This, folks, is what it means to walk by faith. This is how we, we walk in the plans that God has laid out for us. This is how we receive the blessings, the benefits, and the promises that come with being a child of the Most High God. Paul tells us in Ephesians six sixteen, Above all else, take up the shield of faith, by which you will quench the fiery darts of the enemy. He said, above all else, meaning first and foremost, above all else, because it is by faith that we receive the truth of the word of God. By faith, the salvation that ushers us into the kingdom. By faith, we walk the path of righteousness, righteousness that Christ calls us to. It is by faith we receive the peace of the eternal good news. And it is by faith that we know that our prayers, he hears and he answers. It's not if, but when Satan attacks. They do come. And it is the first line of defense by which we stop his fiery attack. It protects all other aspects of the armor. And when we repel this attack by this great shield that the Lord has given us, we return a fierce and a mighty blow with thus saith the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father, we just come to you in the name of Jesus, Lord. And we just thank you for the truth of your word, O God. Lord God, may we apply it in our lives. May we walk this walk of faith before you, O God. For we know there is victory in your word, there is victory in your presence, and there is victory for your children over every area and every circumstance of life. So Lord, we just thank you for your word, and we thank you for the promises of your word, Lord God. We ask you to bless us, Lord God. In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. Amen. Let's give Kobe Foreman a big God bless you. Amen. That's a teacher of the word right there. Amen. Wow. I've been fed the word of God tonight. How about you? And you know what? The Bible says that the word is, is, is something with that, that, uh, he said, Jesus is the word. Jesus said, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And a lot of guys didn't understand that and they left him. But, uh, what he's saying, just partake of me. Uh, and uh, man, tonight we've partaken of the Word of God. It's built my faith tonight, made me stronger. I feel a sense of uh, uh, of, of strength. Uh, one scripture he didn't quote, I get to quote. Second, uh, pardon me, First John five four said, "This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith." faith. Yep. Not Kobe's faith for you, not my faith for you, but your faith. Amen. And so God's given us all a measure of faith. And it is a shield that will protect us uh, from all the, the, uh, the powers of darkness. And so tonight, uh, may you be encouraged to, you know, uh, just walk that walk of faith. Let the Word of God build your faith and cause you to grow stronger day by day. And as, we, as this series says, learn how to uh, live uh, victorious over the powers of darkness in your life. Amen. Amen. And so God bless